You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, all. My name is Ben. It is good to see all of your faces. I recently read a post online titled, Things People Love or Hate. I think a lot of people in this room can relate to some things on this list. The author says that the following things people either love or people hate. Cilantro, money, children, alcohol, techno music, dogs, risk, documentaries, rigorous cardio routines, tickling, Kanye West, your parents, reality TV, anime, Taylor Swift, the New England Patriots, of course, (laughs) theology, and of course, you guessed it, Nickelback. (laughs) All these things and more are things that people often love or hate. They can be polarizing to people where a lot of people have strong feelings either one way or another about them. Now, I mention this today because in our passage that we will look at this morning, we'll be up close and personal with one of the most polarizing moments in early Christianity. We'll look at what is commonly called the first missionary journey, where thousands and thousands of people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Christianity. They hear it and they see it with their own eyes and ears. And what we'll see is that a lot of people love it and a lot of people hate it. And what we'll see is that really throughout the whole rollout of uh, this missionary endeavor, although it's really bumpy and it has tons of challenges and obstacles and a lot of pain, it's a major success in God's eyes. Tons of new churches are planted. Lots of people become believers. They find faith in Jesus Christ and reconciliation to God. And we can say confidently that seeds for positive cultural change were planted there in the Mediterranean world. It's a reminder that success is rarely ever a straight line, yet God has a promise. He has a promise to redeem people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And even in the face of major difficulty and challenges and obstacles, we see that God is still committed to redeeming people, to bringing his love and grace and mercy to every human heart. And that's really the main idea of this passage this morning and really the main idea of this message. God is committed to redeeming people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. He's factored in human weakness. He's factored in spiritual indifference. He's factored in ignorance. He's factored in the darkness. He's factored in all types of violence and opposition. And he's still committed to using people like you or I, or Paul and Barnabas, as we'll see in this passage, to communicate the message of his son to others. Now, we're covering a whole lot of text this morning, probably more than we ever have here at King's Church, so I'll be doing a little bit of paraphrasing, but really here is the outline of where we're going this morning. Number one, 
the gospel to the monotheist, meaning those who believe in one God, a supreme being. We'll see that in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13, all the way to chapter 14, verse 7. And then secondly, the gospel to the polytheist, meaning those who believe in lots of gods. And we'll see that, of course, in chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. Lots of different worldviews, lots of different starting points, but we'll see that God is committed to revealing himself to them all. Now, before we jump in, for those of you who might be new, or maybe you're checking this out for the first time, uh, or perhaps uh, you've been in and out uh, throughout the last couple of months, as a church, we've been studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is in the New Testament, and it essentially is the origin story of the early church. The, the beginnings of the church of Christ. The book starts with the resurrection of Jesus. He says that in just a few days, uh, he'll ascend and then he'll send his spirit. And we find in the opening pages of the book of Acts, uh, Jesus Christ ascends, he disappears miraculously, and as a result, he sends his spirit. And he tells the early church, those early disciples, that they will be his witnesses, They'll be his spokespeople. They'll be his representation to the ends of the earth. And what we see is that God sends his spirit, and this spirit is an outside power that creates this kind of inner wonder in the lives of these early Christians. And the church is then rebooted. It's relaunched, and they're marked by things like radical unselfishness and generosity, and specifically important for this morning, marked by a great sense of purpose. That purpose was joining God in his mission, in his work, to bring his love and his mercy and his grace to their local communities as well as all over the world. And so as the book of Acts really ensues, as it begins, we begin to see thousands of people becoming Christians. In the opening pages, we see thousands and thousands of Jews who believe in the Messiah. They come to faith that this is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. And then all of a sudden, we see God using other Christians to bring the Samaritans and an Ethiopian, different races, to faith in Christ. Then we see a Pharisee, a, a lead religious teacher. We see a Roman soldier and his family all come to faith in Christ. And last week, we saw a Roman politician. Different races, different classes, different stations of life, all becoming believers in Jesus, which really brings us to this point in the book of Acts where we are today. After 20 years or so of the gospel erupting in Jerusalem, where there are hundreds and thousands of new believers and new churches all over the Mediterranean world, these little outposts, these little embassies of the kingdom of God, one of these churches decides they're going to follow God into different places on the map. They were compelled by God's spirit, we read in Acts chapter 13, to send representatives, we might say agents or uh, spokespeople, to different parts of the map. Uh, we call them today missionaries, and their names here are Paul, Barnabas, and John. 
And after their first little pit stop on the island of Cyprus, which we looked at last week, they jump on a boat and they continue in their work, this participation in God's gospel work uh, towards what we would say is uh, modern day Turkey. They sail up the Mediterranean and they land there on the coast. And so let's pick up on our first point, the gospel to the monotheist. Verse 13 of chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now there's going to be a lot of names and a lot of uh, cities and a lot of provinces and a lot of continents that are going to be wildly unfamiliar to us this morning. If I were to say Amherst and Williamsville and Kenmore, generally only if you're from Western New York would you know what I'm talking about. We're not from this time period. Uh, These are some unfamiliar places to us, uh, but they're places in the ancient world. On the screen already you see uh, a map. This is essentially kind of a a simplified map of where these early missionaries traveled to. Uh, And you can see they're kind of launching from the north of Syria. Uh, They hit that island, and then they come up on uh, the coast of what would be called the province of Galatia. On the next slide, here is what the world looks like today. Uh, We see familiar places like Syria and Iraq and Turkey and Italy. And so the blue lines essentially remind us that uh, they're mainly doing mission work in what today is southern Turkey. I once heard a really bad joke that the apostles were stuffing Turkey with the gospel. I thought that was really funny. You might not, but let's get back to this passage. They arrived, and the text says, verse 14, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, this generally is going to be the approach of missionaries in the New Testament. They're going to go to the synagogues first. Uh, the synagogues were basically the places where Jews congregated to worship. And the people there would have believed in the Old Testament. They would have had categories for a Messiah. And so it's a very strong place to kind of establish footing in a new community. Also, if they would have started with uh, the non-Jews or the Gentiles first, the synagogues likely would have been closed to them. The passage goes on, verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. During the services, uh, if you were a Jew, at the end of the service, kind of like some Christian denominations today, not this one, Uh, you could get up and you could talk, you could share a word uh, of encouragement to the people in the assembly. Verse 16, Paul takes the opportunity. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And what happens is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Since this would be a bit of a sermon in a sermon, like the movie Inception, and since since it's a little bit long, I'm going to just kind of not read it all, but I do want to point out a few things in this sermon, because I think this shows us how the gospel is good news to the monotheist, or the Jew, uh, or the person who has belief in a supreme being or supreme power. First, he really starts on drawing on Israel's ancient history. 
He's talking to a Jewish audience there in the synagogue who believe in the promises of God. And so he says in verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Verse 18, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 20, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul. Verse 22, he raised up David to be their king. He's essentially drawing on all of Israel's history. If you grew up in church, some of these names and places and events are certainly familiar. And what he's ultimately saying is that in all of this history, God has been present. God has been active. He's been doing something the whole time. And it leads up to this very moment on the timeline. Verse 23, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Verse 27, Jerusalem and the rulers, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, fulfilled them by condemning him. Verse 28, and though they founded him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But then finally, at the crescendo, the climax of Paul's sermon here, he announces the victory. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He finishes his sermon, and we know it was very powerful. Tons of people believe, the Bible says. It's so powerful, they invite him back the following week. Verse 44, the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, I have two reasons, and I'm sure there are more, for why this is such good news, Paul's first sermon here, why this is such good news for the monotheist or the Jew or the person who is relatively religious or who believes in a supreme power. First reason, number one, is that the resurrection is incredibly great. Now, back then, most Jews didn't even believe in a resurrection. Those that did believed that it would happen at the end of time. Uh, there would be a resurrection when the world was completely and totally restored. But nobody would have thought of a resurrection now when the rest of the world was not yet restored. Uh, meaning no one would have held the opinion that before God finally restores the world, that a man could be walking around in a new body, walking through walls, and eating a fish. It wasn't what anyone was expecting. Uh, the Romans certainly weren't. The Greeks certainly weren't. The Jews certainly weren't. And really, there was nothing in Eastern thought quite like it. This was totally unique. And within a few centuries, Christianity was everywhere. The world was changed. People were blown away by the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. 
It literally changed everything. Now, I think one of the reasons why is that the resurrection itself fulfills our hopes for a future better than anything else out there. The resurrection itself fulfills our hopes for the future better than anything else out there. What I mean by that is that in contrast to the popular ideas that when you die, you die, or when you die, you become one with the universe, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that we have a future. The future isn't darkness. It's not unknown. We're not just dust in the wind. Resurrection means we have a future. And not only do we have a future, but the resurrection promises us that we get our lives back. Lots of religions promise happy, everlasting afterlives after you die. They promise heaven. And heaven is kind of a consolation prize for all that you've had to go through on earth. All the stuff you've had to plow through. But in the resurrection, you get a restoration of what you lost. In the resurrection, you get your body back. You get the body that you've always hoped you had. In the resurrection, you get your life back, the life that you've always wished that you had. You get this world back, and it's renewed and perfect. The cross means a lot, especially when we're young, because of all the stupid things we've all done all the craziness so many of us have done as young people. But as we age, and I think some of you are going to be tracking with me with this, the resurrection becomes more and more important because that day is coming. And through faith in Jesus, now his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Today and one day in full. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our life. One day and forevermore. This resurrection rocked the world, and it still does. When we understand it, it hits the spot in every human soul more than anything else out there. Another reason why I think this is such good news, Paul's message here to those who are monotheist or Jews or who had a belief in a supreme power, is because the gospel says that it is finished. Pastor Tim Keller makes a great distinction that more traditional people generally think there are two ways to relate to God. Number one, you can reject God, or number two, you can follow him. But in reality, Tim Keller points out that in the Bible, we actually see two ways to reject God. Number one, we can reject him by rejecting his law and living any way we want. Or number two, we can reject him by following his laws and obeying him in order to earn his salvation. He says this second way is what we commonly call moralism, trying to be good enough, to try hard enough to earn our salvation. He says that it's only in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this third way that we can find real salvation. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here in this sermon. He says towards the end, verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law 
of Moses. He uses this word justified, which is sometimes a courtroom word. When an action is justified, it means that the action is vindicated. It's valid. In God's courtroom, when a person is justified, it means that they're valid. It means that they're good to go. And why the gospel is such good news to those of us who really wrestle with self-righteousness or trying to be good enough to be enough for God is that through Christ and Christ alone, we're good to go. We're valid. No matter what we've done or how short we've come up, through Jesus, we can find total forgiveness and a complete righteousness given to us from outside of ourselves. As the quote goes, the very righteousness that God demanded of us, he provided for us in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our sins from us. Faith in Christ, at the end of the day, is ultimately humility over pride. Trust in Christ comes when we realize there's nothing we can do but to trust in what Jesus has done for us. It's the realization that God's love for us, that God's pleasure to us, is never going to be in response to what we can do for him. Instead, it's based totally on his unconditional love, his grace, and his sacrifice for us. This is really good news. And for those of us And for those of them who were religious and maybe who were trying to justify themselves, trying to be good enough for God, to be enough to earn God's love, the gospel changed their lives. When they saw the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the love of God, they saw it all in the work of Jesus Christ. And they believed deeply in their hearts, along with Jesus, that it is finished, the price has been paid. The passage continues really after Paul's sermon, and things get a little bit choppy. Uh, There were some people who loved it, and there were some people that hated it. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They go on to Iconium, this next city in the province of Galatia, and they get a little bit of a love-hate response here as well. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And, they, and there they continued to preach the gospel. And so they have a little bit of success there, but also, again, a love-hate response. And so when things get a little bit choppy, out of wisdom and God's guidance, they go to Lystra and Derby, which really leads us to our second point, the gospel to the polytheist. Verse 8, now at Lystra. Now, Lystra was essentially a backwater town. It was filled with retired Roman military personnel, veterans. It was your pretty rural town, pretty quiet, but also pretty weird. Uh, It was a good retirement place, but there wasn't a synagogue or a church in sight. It's filled with the worship of many different gods. Verse 8, 
Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, sometimes we come across very supernatural events in the Bible, and this is certainly one of them. God supernaturally heals a guy who couldn't walk, and he gets up and praises the Lord. I realize we live in a very anti-supernatural age, and some people struggle to believe something like this could happen. But this wasn't normal for them either. Uh, This was extraordinary. Like the writer of the book of Acts has two years' worth of material, and he specifically includes this little excerpt because it's so shocking. Because look at the response, verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now Zeus, of course, is the god of thunder and lightning. He's the king of gods. Don't mix them up with Thor, the Norse god played, of course, by Chris Hemsworth. And Hermes, on the other hand, is the god of eloquence. He was the messenger of the gods. He spoke on behalf of the gods. He's also the god of trickery and thievery, similar, of course, to uh, the Norse god Loki. Essentially, the people, uh, because of the miracle, they assume Barnabas must be Zeus and Paul is Hermes because, of course, he's the preacher. The text goes on, verse 13, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness." For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So things start off pretty powerfully here. There's this miraculous healing, but then there's this really confused response. Uh, The people in the town, they form this mob crowd, and they want to offer sacrifices to them because they think, of course, that this is Zeus and Hermes. Uh, But then Paul speaks. It's pretty spontaneous. It's pretty short. We'll learn later that many become believers in Lystra. And today, the archaeology would show several ancient churches there in the city of Lystra. Now, there is a whole lot that we can learn from this second little spontaneous sermon of Paul. This is the first time where we see Christian speakers talking to people who don't believe in the Bible, who know very little about the Bible. It was a completely pluralistic culture there in Lystra, and this is really important because today we live in a pluralistic culture. We live in Washington, D.C., where on uh, the one hand, you can meet someone who completely understands the Bible and grew up with the Bible, and on the other hand, you can meet someone who knows nothing at all. 
So I have really two reasons, similar to what I did with the first little sermon, for why this is such good news for the polytheist or the spiritual person or the person who is relatively non-religious. Two reasons. Number one, the gospel liberates our hearts. The good news of Jesus frees our hearts. Notice that in this gospel presentation, it's very different than what we just read in the first sermon. Verse 14, verse 15, rather, we bring you good news. We bring you gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's no mention of the word sin. There's no mention of the word law. There's no quoting of the Bible. He doesn't say you have sins and you need them forgiven. He basically says you're enslaved by idols and you need a new master. Now, an idol can be really anything. It can be a statue. It can be a friendship. It can be a relationship. It can be a desire for something. It can be a country. It can be, a mo- it can be money. It can be a job. It can be a possession. It can be almost anything. And an idol becomes an idol only when our hearts start to fall into idolatry. The textbook definition of idolatry is the worship of an idol or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or some thing. A good definition I heard once of idolatry is that it's a good thing that becomes a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. It's something good that becomes ultimate. It happens when we believe something or someone or some status, position, or relationship, or a state is going to fill us up, where those things are going to satisfy us or ultimately make us happy. When we idolize something, we effectively say, this is my hope. This is what I live for. Said another way, what Paul is saying, what's good news in what he's saying is because he's getting at the core of the human heart. He's saying everybody lives for something, religious or non-religious. Whatever you are in this room, everybody is sacrificing for something. Everyone is living for something. And whatever that is, that is your master. If you're ultimately living for love and romance, you're controlled by the person you want to love you. If you're ultimately living for money, you're controlled by that because you have to do whatever it takes to keep it and to get it. If you're ultimately living for power, you're controlled by that because you have to do whatever it takes to get it and to keep it. And if you're living for the God of whatever, you're controlled by that because you have to do whatever it takes to get it and to keep it. He's saying that whatever it is that we live for, where we find our meaning, and our purpose, that is our master. And if we fail it, it will punish us with grief, with sadness, and anger. But Paul says in the gospel, we get the true God, the living God, the God that if we fail, he chooses to forgive us. He doesn't choose to crush us or inflict us with grief or anger or despair because he's good and he's merciful. And if we're mastered by him, will always be filled up by his grace, which really leads us to the second point. 
God is more than enough. Paul's message here of this gospel is that idols are vain and worthless. Verse 15, they're dead. They're empty. They're unable to ultimately fill us up. They promise more than they can deliver. They'll take more from us than they could ever give us. But the true God, the God of the Bible who made the heavens and the earth is just the opposite. He's alive. He's able to fill you up. He gives you more than you could ever desire or dream of. And he'll give us abundantly more than he ever requires of us. He's more than enough. He's worthy. He's sufficient. And he'll never let us down. And he'll fill every human heart and every soul with himself. Now, after this initial incident, some time goes on, and the passage continues, and it gets very choppy. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. This will essentially close the first Christian missionary journey on the way back home. The missionaries visit all the churches that they've planted by the grace of God. They meet up with these new Christians. It was really bumpy. It was filled with a lot of challenges and obstacles and pain, but it's a major success in the eyes of God. Tons of new churches are started. Hundreds of people become believers And we can say confidently that the seeds for positive cultural change were planted there in the Mediterranean world. It's a reminder again that success is rarely ever a straight line. Yet God has a promise. He has a promise to redeem people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And even in the face of major barriers and major difficulty, God's able to sort it all out. He's still committed to redeeming people from every corner of the earth. And he's still committed to using people like you or I, like Paul or Barnabas, to communicate his son to others. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.